Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to our first playoff show of 2023. And Cody, if if the rest of the playoffs are anything like the first weekend, this might be our last playoff show um, because one has to do things other than watch basketball to survive, you know, like sustenance and maintenance and sleeping and eating and exercising and things like that. And I just could not take my eyes off of what was for my money. Um, I mean, this has got to be like my 30 something opening playoff weekend in NBA history and right up there with the very best of them game after game. Where should we start? How are you doing? What, what is the plan of attack here to make sense of everything that we just saw? I think the thing, if, if I had one criticism of an almost perfect weekend, the t- first two games of the weekend, what were they? It was uh, the Sixers and the Nets started us off. That was a warm-up. We that, was like, yeah. that, was, that was an amuse-bouche. Was <laughs> <laughs> open up the We palette. had two warm-ups. We had two warm-ups because then we went to Atlanta-Boston, which was, I don't know, semi-interesting. But I feel like I went in too hot. I was excited. And then I just got like, like by the time we got to the Clippers' sons yesterday, I like, I couldn't write anything. I was just like zoned out like jump shot, rebound. Like there was nothing else that I could just like process. It was just like too much. Your mistake was you watched the Clippers, I mean the uh, Celtics and the Hawks. That was, you needed to detox a little. You needed to warm the legs up. And then let someone else have a go. Let some let the Celtics and the Hawks fans do a lap in that game. Maybe tune in for you know half a quarter or something. Uh, because what was the third game? The third game starting to get ser- that Knicks Cavs. Oh boy, we got to talk about that. Um, and I did not expect to get to the end of the playoff. Not even the end. The Nuggets played after the Clippers and the Suns. I did not expect to be here on the first weekend. Going full standing in front of the TV mode. I, you know, you know, you're pacing in front of the TV. You ever have that? Oh, man. Um, here, here's what I want to talk about today. Yeah, let, let's let's rein us in and get some control. I can see the comments already coming in that we are unorganized and all over the place. Um, I think we need to discuss if anything changed for you after the first weekend. If anything changed for you. I, I We talked about it um, privately last week before the playoffs tipped and I shared my um, sort of assessment of each series, my handicapping of each series for Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. And I think obviously there are three series that are really hard to call or could go either way. Some people disagree. Some people say that the Warriors are going to sweep the Kings. I mean, I'm not going to say Dave Dufour's name or anything from the from the last episode. Um, and I'm sure there's people who disagree. Maybe, maybe some people think the Clippers and the Suns are a tough call or whatnot. But for me, I really struggled with three of them. And then, of course, we, we got some really interesting results in a few of the other series that we'll discuss. So, like, what what changed, if anything, for you based on where you were Friday and where we are today recording on Monday after one game in each series, that's that's maybe the perspective I want to take today. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave Milwaukee, Miami to the side for a second. That's that's a whole other that's gotta be bracketed. That's in the parking lot. We might not even talk about that series. It's just that's its own thing, right? I think the actual series where I'm swaying a little bit more than I expected was, uh, and I know we disagreed on this before the playoffs started, was Cavs-Knicks. 
because I was on the Cavs side of things. I thought the Cavs were going to take this one down. I did not trust the Knicks going into the playoffs, and I know it's one game, but then you look at the you look at the stat sheet, right? Like I, I kept writing down in my notes. I kept being like, all right, if J- Julius Randle keeps making these shots, they're going to do fine, and he didn't necessarily have the most efficient sort of night, and he kind of created a lot of contact and created a lot of offense that way, but the fact that Emmanuel quickly didn't have a great day, game, uh, Quentin Grimes didn't have a great game. When those couple of things happen, I'm like, ooh, there's a, there's a lot of room for the Knicks to grow. Even though Darius Garland, I don't think he took a shot in the fourth quarter. That's definitely not something you want to see from your like one of two functional offensive players. Uh, Evan Mobley shot like 30% from the field. The amount of layups that team missed between Karis LeVert, Evan Mobley, Jarrett Allen, both teams have a lot. lot. Yeah. They have a lot to, to grow on, but uh, I felt better about the Knicks after game one. First of all, for the I've tried to tell you this, that's a standard Julius Randle fourth quarter right there. Um, he he was cooking in the first half, as you'd expect, and I'm at the point with him where if he gives me like two or three makes in the fourth quarter and only one turnover, I I think that's a that's a solid Julius Randle fourth quarter. And of course, coming back from injury, you know, one thing for me going into this series, first, I didn't think his injury would be that big of a deal because the first two games are on the road. So the worst case scenario is something like he misses the first two games and you're down to nothing, which isn't great, but at least it's on the road and you can kind of work your way back from that. But second, man, I just believed in the Knicks, whether he played or not, because I think it's a good matchup for them against the Cavs. And the really interesting development in that series, because first of all, the Cavs are the Cavs are very good, and they could have easily won that game, and you know, be one step closer to advancing. Because I do think this is going to be a tough series for both teams. But the big question is, who's going to shoot threes? Who's gonna who's going to uh, play the small forward position? It was exactly what I thought we would see from the Knicks defensively sagging off shooters, ignoring the small forwards that they put out there. And and Cody I'll almost say it was it was even more extreme than I thought it was going to be. You got you got pangs of discomfort watching some of the Cavs players just be completely Andre Roberson in the corner. I'm cha- I'm changing my mind on what I said about Andre Roberson the other day. I said, "We give him a hard time." No, this is a great way to memorialize Andre Roberson in the Matisse Thybul category of one-way players, an amazing defensive player, and uh, I'm just going to keep using him in in honor of his greatness uh, as someone who was so good defensively that he stayed on the court and the Thunder just ate his lack of shooting. Anyway, I don't know how much the Cavs can digest a lack of shooting on their end, so that'll be the big question. But it was a very close game. I, th- I still think it's going to be a, a tight, competitive series. Um, but I was leaning Knicks before they started, so you know that wasn't one for me that looked very different than what I thought it was going to be. I think you you hit the you hit the nail on the head here because we talked about we we had an episode I think where we really broke down the Cavs offense a little bit and we talked about just how few of their players have hit even 40% of their wide open threes. I think Darius Garland at that point it was only Darius Garland and, and Donovan Mitchell that had done so and I wouldn't be surprised if that was the same. I don't think I counted Dean Wade at that point cuz he had only played 700 800 minutes in that point in the season, but the amount of record scratch offensive possessions where it just kind of ends up in like I Gakoro's hands in the corner and then everything's just like 
what's going to happen next? Is he, is he going to drive? Is someone going to pop out and try and reset the action? And, you know, something kind of bothers me, Ben. Something kind of bothers me. There were a few times where somebody made what looked like a a really nice pass to the corner. Like, they throw, like, a nice little no-look pass, and it's like, wow, that was a really slick quick kickout. But it's like, yeah, the kickout's wide open. That's what the defense wants you to do. Like, that's not impressive. That's exactly what they're trying to do. And I think there's this this element that's like you're trying to be unselfish, but you kind of actually have to be selfish to go against what the defense wants you to do. And so I think that the strained relationship between that third perimeter player for the Cavs and the three-point shot, that's going to be a huge issue. And I don't know. What do you think? Are they just going to have to play Dean Wade like 40 minutes to get any kind of shooting there? I, I thought uh, I thought Jetty in game one maybe looked like the guy who could shoot kind of the least worst while also not being exposed defensively. Like, you know, you it's like a balancing game. You want to have as much shooting as you can get from that position without creating a defensive problem. They just don't have a lot of depth. I mean, they don't have... Uh, a ton of options off the bench in this case. One of the things we were batting around was, you know, can they limit Jared Allen's minutes to create more spacing? But they just uh, they just don't have a lot of options. It's not like they have smaller forwards or, you know, I don't know if a lineup with like Levert and Osmond or one of the other forwards would really do the trick. So it's tricky. The flip side, of course, is Cleveland's bigs and their size and Evan Mobley make them a great defensive team. And that's why they were right in the game. And it'll be interesting to track the offensive ratings in that series. Okay, we got to get to we got to get to another series. Um, Let's start with the one that I think I texted you like eight minutes into the first quarter. And I said, I am rethinking my assessment of this series. Lakers, Grizzlies, I was on the fence until about the 11th hour, and I just kind of thought between the Lakers' health problems and the Grizzlies' pace and kind of success of their role players and the home court advantage, all of that probabilistically, I was like, "Ah, I'm going to lean Grizzlies. I believe in Jaws' ability to get into the paint. And I believe in Jaron Jackson's ability to perform in the postseason on both ends of the court. In game one, I think we saw Jaws' ability to get into the paint and Jaron Jackson's ability to perform on both ends of the court. And basically, before the first quarter even ended, I was like, oh, man, this is a better matchup for the Lakers than, than I thought. Because, to me, the lack of size for the Grizzlies and the lack of depth on their front line... I really underestimated that piece. Um, not that I didn't think Stephen Adams, you know, just to be clear, not that I didn't think Stephen Adams wasn't valuable or that his offensive rebounding wouldn't be missed, but it's more about who's next on the bench. And it doesn't feel like a Santi Aldama series to me. And then there was just no one left. Like, who who are they going to have guard Anthony Davis? And who are they going to have guard LeBron James? Uh, we can talk about LeBron because his opening game was interesting. But either way, that just felt like a problem throughout the game for Memphis. And I think Memphis is good enough that it was a close game. They're in a position to win. Uh, another epic game that was just like back and forth, tactical stuff. Anthony Davis getting a stinger, coming back. John Morant with the injury at the end of the game. His x-rays are negative, so hopefully he'll be back in the series and everyone's at full strength. But 
you know, Austin Reeves just taking over down the stretch and this tight back and forth game ends up with the Lakers winning by, I think, 16 on ending the game on like a 16-0 run in the final two minutes. That was like the third or fourth best game of the weekend. I was going to say, I'm, I'm a little disappointed in us and not starting with the actual game of the weekend, but that's okay. We got to warm up to it a little we're gonna, bit. We're going to build up to that, and people get very upset for some reason <laughs> when we talk about the, the Warriors or the teams in the NBA Finals. So um, we're just going to save that for later. Am I, am I a wet blanket, Ben, if I'm not quite as confident in the Lakers' uh, chances this series as you are? No, I don't think it's a wet blanket. I'm just I'm just saying, to me, this was a really tough series to call. Uh, maybe my impressions from reading some other stuff and listening to some other shows was, you know, a lot of people were excited about the Lakers. For me, it was still very tough. And I just thought, number one, and again, knock on wood, knock on whatever you're listening to, knock on any object that approximates wood, get chat GPT to knock on wood for you. Anthony Davis looked amazing physically in the first quarter of that game. And that was one of the huge reasons that I was like, oh, I, li- I like the Lakers chances more than I thought 24 hours ago because of that combination of how good he looked and the fact that Memphis, I, I am blown away I really dropped the ball I feel like for 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 myself analytically with just how little they have on the front line um you know we're talking about David Roddy or Kenny Lofton Jr. or the stars of the Memphis hustle like coming in and and it just didn't seem to be an option Zaire Williams is is nowhere to be found um and he was you know he was like getting big playoff minutes in big games last year so that those the combination of those two things, Cody, with AD and and Memphis, um, and then the Lakers role players. Now Rui Hachimura is not going to have the game of his life every game. But the weird thing about the Lakers is they've got like five or six players that can go for twenty. They have these guys that have strengths and weaknesses, and I think especially with Troy Brown and Rui, they're big and they've had good defensive minutes. And if they're hitting a decent amount of their shots. Now you get to do stuff like, oh, we're not going to play D'Lo because his shot isn't falling. Or this is a Reeves lineup. We're going to have, like, I mean, Reeves literally just kind of took over the game down the stretch. And LeBron James maybe looked the worst I've ever seen him look. He's, he's you know, obviously the oldest he's ever been. I mean, that's a profound statement. Um, but he also is coming off of injury. And it, it didn't even matter to me. It's just like, oh, yeah, I probably should have leaned Lakers instead of leaning Memphis. That, w- that was my takeaway from game one. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. So, okay, I think when it comes to the Grizzlies, the way that they performed, in my mind, is how I think they'll be able to perform throughout the entire series. Like, save for whatever happens with Ja, like, we're all obviously hoping he's able to come back and he's healthy. The NBA is better when superstars can play. But still, it, it looks like they're able to do what they're going to do. And everything they did on the court, I'm like, okay, this is going to be the Grizzlies team. But the Lakers, what I can't get over is there's kind of almost like four or five things that are pushing and pulling against each other where I'm like, I don't know what's real and I don't know what's fake. Like Rui Hachimura, for instance, he's not going to score 20 for nine points in 29 minutes again. Ben, this man... like. Five for five from three at one point. Turn around like 18-footer in someone's grill. Ben, he took Jaron off the dribble and hammered it on his head. That would look listen, we might rank like our favorite moments of the weekend. That's that's either in it or it's competing, right? That's incredible. That didn't even make your top five plays. I, I can't I, believe you're misleading the people, right? Now Cody sent everybody a top five five plays of the weekend, and then Rui Hachimura Dunk was nowhere to be found. When I was rethinking about it on my drive home today, it does make my top five. We can rehash that a little bit later. So that's one thing, right? And then we have Austin Reeves. We know Austin Reeves is a great player, but what? He had 14, 16 points in the fourth quarter. Like LeBron was just like, take over, young man. Like do whatever you have to do. And he looked incredible. The behind the back pass was maybe the most confident behind the back pass I've seen in in months. Like that dude knew, knew it was going to hit its target, right? So I'm, you know. I'm not 100% trusting those two things. Anthony Davis, he had 10 stocks this game, seven blocks, three steals. However, however, Ben, I thought his movement patterns, like you said, they looked incredible. So I feel like the defensive performance in general, I think he can keep that up, right? So I think that's something that's going to stay consistent as Anthony Davis, if he stays healthy, is going to be a defensive monster. But like you said, Ben, LeBron, first of all, Ben, Ben, (laughs) is this the loudest, loudest three blocks in NBA history, the loudest three blocks that was not indicative of how how probably bad he was at t- certain times at defense. Yeah, well, he's he's still moving well in a straight line, especially when he can accelerate himself. You know, I think the older you get, maybe I'm just speaking from personal experience, the acceleration and deceleration part of your movement patterns are tricky. And he at one point had this crossover in the first half that was like, the slowest, most old man crossover I've ever seen from LeBron. So changing directions on defense. um, You know, he had this one sequence with just a terrible turnover. Then he didn't close out to the corner to Luke Kennard, the greatest open shooter. Like, the guy uses the force to put the ball in the basket. It's so accurate. And then came down and... I think the worst pass I've ever seen LeBron throw. He threw a behind the back. He was trying the Luka Doncic hedge pick and roll behind the back pass. Threw it off somebody's leg. I don't even know the purpose of the pass, even if it got through. Anyway, all that is to say, um, I think LeBron's sort of overall play, long-term prognostication might in a sense have more to do with how far this Lakers team can go. If Anthony Davis is going to play like this, whereas I think they can win the series with him playing just like he did in game one. I don't think that's an issue because the rest of the roster has strengths. I mean, um, you know, we got we got our classic 23 minutes of Jared Vanderbilt hounding around and it wasn't even a big Jared Vanderbilt game. And they have these other guys that, that can contribute. So I don't know. But I don't think you're being a wet blanket because Memphis still got out in transition. Desmond Bain had a great game. I think that athleticism and speed can be a factor. Um, 
so still it's still to me a very close series but that was that was the big one for for me in terms of like ooh this might be this might go the other way uh versus what i thought you know who really impressed me? Jaron Jackson impressed me. Obviously, the defense is great, but some of those post-up bends, like I know I know he's strong enough that he's just, you know, able to just throw smaller defenders like into the basket. But the Lakers were really trying hard to front him at times. And I actually thought there were a couple possessions when LeBron really fought to front Jaron. I think the Grizzlies tried to force it in and they forced a couple of turnovers that way. And I'm like, yes, this is the way to get it. But if Jaron got it with LeBron on his back, it was over. Like, Jaron was showcasing some really good patience. There were a couple plays where he kind of got into the paint and pivoted, and I was like, oh, this looks like it's going to be a turnover or a fourth shot. And then he kind of spun one extra way and finished, and I was like, ooh, ooh, I like that kind of patience. So this is this is a big eye-opening Jaron Jackson offensive game for me. Cody, I just want to take this time to observe Anthony Davis. There was, there was a time when I used to get many, many messages from the inter- internet about how <laughs> biased and in love I was with Anthony Davis because I thought he was good at basketball Mm. when he was in the bubble he was the only person I saw really bam bam we talked about this before bam would give it to people and then Anthony Davis just like reduced bam to shrink wrap Jaron Jackson yesterday looked like look he looked like a mutant when Anthony Davis wasn't there and then Anthony Davis just dominated him whenever it was the craziest thing it was like it was like, well, Jaron can't score on AD, but if AD goes out, then no one can stop Jaron Jackson. Jaron Jackson absolutely bully ball abusing LeBron James in the post. I mean, that's a sentence I don't think I've ever said about anyone ever. Um, I just want to I just want to insert that as a reminder of Anthony Davis, who's not even at his peak right now, just how, how good he is and. Uh, how interesting that dimension is if he can continue to stay healthy. Okay, where should we go next? Is there another? Did the clip? Did the Clippers? Did the Clippers catch you off guard? Because the thing about that series that's interesting to me is yes, we can we can have a referendum on the Clippers. There's a whole Russell Westbrook angle because he played the most fascinating game maybe of his whole life. Just. Westbrooking it up with three of 19 shooting. You know, he had one possession where he like yoked a three, missed it, got his own rebound, and instantly took a fadeaway bank shot from 15 feet, bricked them both. That's how you get up to three for 19. But on the flip side, everything else that he did, this is like the idealized Russell Westbrook going back to UCLA with the rearview pursuit on defense and the insane offensive rebounding. And of course, the play of the game where Devin Booker is complaining to the official as he blocks it and then throws it out of bounds off of him. Um, so we can do the Clippers angle, but there's a ton there with the Suns as well. This, you know, I, I have some, I have a couple of analytical things. Like I said, this is when my eyes started glazing over on the weekend, where it was just like jump shot, jump shot. Like, I don't know what's happening at this point anymore. But here's the thing I will say, Ben, is Russell Westbrook and at times Donovan Mitchell were absolutely coming at us personally for leaving them out of the motor conversation because both of them were just shot out of a cannon. And I know Donovan Mitchell wasn't on the same level as Westbrook. Westbrook was everywhere. I want to go back and give Mitchell his 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 flowers because I thought he was just revving the engine all over the place in that Knicks Cavs game. But yeah, Westbrook just that block and save into uh, into into Booker, another one of my top five favorite plays of the weekend. Just incredible. Another one, Ben. The Chris Paul, the Chris Paul offensive rebound nutmeg, I think, to Tory Craig. 
for for the layup. Like these are just incredible high level plays. But I think like one of the main takeaways that I couldn't I just couldn't get away from with this game was the amount of just like either either back cuts or just like simple general cuts that the Suns couldn't keep up with. Like the Clippers would run some kind of action, there'd be a back screen or someone would make a back cut, and then they would just be open for a lob. I think there was one sideline out of bounds play where I don't even remember who it was, but the Clippers just like walked to the basket and got a layup out of it. So I think defensively, the Suns were really out of sorts, and I think the Clippers really needed that because when they went through their like necessary one rough patch of terrible offense, it's rough, Ben. When when this team gets cold, they go really, really cold. So I'm interested to see how much the Suns can shore up their defense. How is Kawhi Leonard so good at basketball? Oh, my God. Have you done an investigation? <laughs> I mean, like, I have my people out there, like, asking questions and whatnot, but I'm waiting for a couple of weeks for the for the tally. Can someone commission Rob Perez to do a wobstigation <laughs> into what is good? Like, Kawhi Leonard, um, you know... There are weaknesses. I've talked about them a lot over the years, but just as a playoff scorer, we've we've discussed how incredible he is before. But that performance, there's something I don't know if his if his facial expression or if his movement patterns create this like stoic effect in our mind where it feels more impressive. But he just, uh, I think someone someone said it this morning. He just terminated. He was just he was just the terminator out there it just looked effortless he's like oh okay kevin durant you think you're better than me at basketball yeah we'll we'll see we'll see what happens at the end of the game and of course i'm someone who thinks kevin durant has probably been better than Kawhi at basketball for most of their prime years but uh i mean that dude was just uh he he was amazing yesterday and it'll be really interesting to see going forward if he can just play at like this demonic, I'm going to get 40 on efficient scoring level with everything else that the Clippers have going, how much they can push this team. Because I want to talk about the Phoenix side, Cody. You mentioned defense, okay? The Suns have only played eight games together. And those eight games, for the most part, weren't really competitive. They weren't against like playoff teams. They were like, we're going to play the Hornets or we're going to play some team who's sitting I can't remember. They, they play the Nuggets and they sat their entire rotation. It was a lot of that. They didn't really have a lot of competitive games down the stretch. So you only have eight games with Durant. Ty Lue talked about throwing them different looks just to challenge their cohesiveness, their communication, the variability and versatility of their sets and of their principles because they're you know relatively new in terms of playing together. And then... There's the element with the Suns' depth, of course, that we talked about in the preview show last time going into the series. But here's the big one for me. Really jumped off the the screen, and it also jumps off the stat sheet if you pull up the box score. They took an unbelievable amount of mid-range jumpers. And this is the thing. Like Chris Paul, Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, DeAndre Ayton, I don't know if he missed a mid-range shot. It was just it's touch city for him from like 8 to 14 feet. And of course, Kevin Durant, one of the one of the GOAT candidates in that category as well. And if you look at the stats, Durant ended the game with like 70% true shooting. Um, but the other guys, Ayton, 53% true shooting. Booker, 58% true shooting. Chris Paul, 39% true shooting. Cody, they took... 19 threes in the whole game. They didn't make 19 threes. They took 19 threes in the whole game. And 
if you get to the line a ton, if you get layups and dunks in today's day and age, you know, you got to score 115 points per 100 or whatever it is to be competitive. That works. But they just didn't quite have that. Um, And it was a very close game. And of course, it could have gone either way down the stretch. So I don't want to make it sound like if if the Suns won the first game that there would be panic. I'm not panicking. But that's what jumped out to me. It felt like Phoenix had moments where they got what they wanted or they were very successful. But after a while, I was like, boy, they're going in twos and the Clippers are going in threes. Now, the Clippers only shot 10 to 31 from downtown themselves. They didn't shoot the ball particularly well, but they did take 31 threes. Phoenix at 19 threes. I mean, what year is it? Is that, is that like a 2007 game? 19 three-point attempts. So uh, that's, to me, what to watch for in game two. And I don't know. The Suns are fascinating because we we just haven't seen them that much. We have no gauge on sort of how elite they actually are. Yeah, I'm looking at their their box score right now. Nobody on Phoenix's bench made a three. Every single one of their made threes was from a starter. Devin Booker wasn't one of them because he went 0 for 3. Um, that's not good. Like, I, I don't know. I didn't pull it up. But I would like to see how many times a team won this year when their bench didn't make a three. Like, I feel like the number would be pretty low. But like you said, there were a lot of uh, mid-range jumpers that the Suns took. And I think, you know, I, he he wasn't quite in our rim protector or our paint protector category. But I think we both like Ivica Zubats as a rim protector. I think he's got great hands. He's got great size. And he when he plays drop defense I think he's pretty integral to how the Clippers play defense and so I guess my question to you Ben is do you think that the amount of mid-range shots that the Phoenix Suns took or the lack of three-pointers was that part of their game plan or were they playing into the Clippers defensive scheme oh I think it was part of the Clippers game plan I think it's the present you you have to give Zubats credit credit we've talked about him all year how key he's been for them but also part of that game plan is these guys like to take long twos and mid-range twos. That's the, the sweet spots for a lot of these players. And so instead of, you know, um, helping on drives and collapsing the defense and having spread pick and roll and letting these role players spot up from three or letting Devin Booker and Kevin Durant play off each other from three, if you can sort of make the middle part of the floor inviting or take away other stuff, the Suns, these three elite players for the Suns, certainly will take a lot of mid-range jumpers. How much they adjust that, how much they're cognizant of that. I mean, these are um, not only three great players, but three pretty cerebral players historically in playoff series. So I don't expect them to take as many mid-range shots as they took in this game. But I actually forgot, Cody, to to tell you how many mid-range shots they took. They took 19 threes. I forgot to tell you about the number of mid-range shots. Would you like to guess... How many mid-range field goal attempts the Suns took in this game? Do you, do you, would you like to throw up a guess? Yeah, I want to play this game. I want to play this game. So let's say let's say they took twenty-five. That feels like a good guess to me. Yeah. The correct answer is according to uh, the play-by-play, they took fifty-six mid-range shots in this game. No. <laughs> 56 <laughs> mid-range shots. 24, real. 24 were long mid-rangers and 32 were short mid-rangers. That means they only had seven attempts at the rim the entire day. Um, no. I, I, don't, I don't think that will last, but again, the math problem there kind of blew my mind because uh, they, they shot 
27 to 56. They shot almost 50% on their two-point shots. But in today's NBA, more than ever, with the offenses being so good, and we still have to get to the main course when we talk about great offenses, uh, 27 to 56 is not going to cut it. That's under a point per possession. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I do want to be charitable to the Suns, though, because when I'm looking at the starting lineup, we're just we're just reading numbers at this point, right? I'm kind of making these connections right now. Uh, the Suns starters seem to do just fine, right? Like looking at plus minus, Aiton was plus 13. Torrey Craig was plus 14. Chris Paul was plus six. Kevin Durant plus four. The bench, though. The bench is where things fell apart. Ben, the Phoenix Suns bench scored eight points. That's a lie. They scored 10 points. The Phoenix Suns bench scored 10 points. Uh, Terrence Mann for the Clippers scored 10 points off the bench. Norman Powell off the bench for the Clippers scored 14 points, right? And so, you know, the bench production thing, they only had one bench player play over 10 minutes, right? Landry Shamit played 23 minutes. Everyone else, Jock Landale, seven and a half minutes. Ish Wainwright, six and a half minutes. Josh Okogie, six and a half minutes. I don't know. Are they like a six-man rotation? Really? Like, can you think of another team that was successful in the playoffs with a legitimate six-man rotation? Like, is this is this a sustainable strategy for the Phoenix Suns? Well, the Nick Nurse Raptors, you know, never went more than seven deep. So it's uh, it's doable. It's doable. There is something here. I mean, I, I will throw out a big picture talking point for people to chew on and throw around. Um there is something here that reminds me a little of the 2011 Heat, where you end up with a roster in the playoffs, and we talk about playoff-level players, and what guys are going to be able to perform in the postseason. You end up with a roster where it's like, the Heat had the big three, and then almost just nothing. Where they're literally the two other positions, more traditionally back in that day, they're like, we need a big man next to Chris Bosch. They wouldn't need that anymore. And then we need a point guard next to LeBron and Dwayne Wade. They wouldn't need that anymore. But those two positions on the court, it was, I mean, it was anything. Let me get Zadrunas Olgowskis out of retirement. Let me get Joel Anthony. Let me get, uh, I'm trying to remember who was on that exact team, Carlos Arroyo, Muchi Norris. Uh, Birdman. I don't know if Birdman was on eleven. That's what I mean, that that first 2011 team. Uh, You know, this is something we could look up with the power of the internet, but it's much more fun to sit around and say names like like old men. Did Mike Bibby? Did Mike Bibby get signed to that team? I think Mike Bibby might have been. But this this is what I mean. There's a little of this with the Suns where they have these four players and, you know, no disrespect to these Tory Craig, Landry Shamit. These are these are NBA players. These are some of the best basketball players in the world. But the drop off there, in terms of filling out the roster and complementing the roster, when you get to the championship or late playoff levels, that's the issue. Josh Okogio, surprised, he only played six and a half minutes mm-hmm. in this game. I I watched some of it in the car, so I couldn't. No, I wasn't driving. Don't don't worry, I wasn't driving <laughs> while I watched it. Um, so I couldn't tell you why he only played six and a half minutes. I think Aiton hit like seven mid-range jumpers while I was watching in the car. But that's the kind of thing. I would not expect in game one, 
to see the five starters, including Torrey Craig, Landry Shamit, and that's about it. As you mentioned, we saw a glimpse of Jock Londale. We saw Ish Wainwright. Um, Bismack Biombo got a dunk and a block, I think. Terrence Ross made an appearance. Damian Lee somehow still did not get in the game. TJ Warren did not get in the game. This just a fascinating series. So did I change my mind on anything here? I don't know, but I'm just sitting around going, I need to learn more because if Kawhi terminates and Eric Gordon plays like that, Russell Westbrook becomes a, a defensive specialist. This, this is going to be fun. There, there were a couple key things too. I think the Chris Paul factor really fascinating to me because in the fourth quarter when it was you know it was right down to it when the game was ready to be taken by either team like either team could have gone on a 6-0 run or something like that and won it and Chris Paul got to his spot a couple of times I think it was Zubats at the time that was in got to his little pull-up spot I think one of them he was chased down by by someone for a nice little contest but both of them I'm like oh here it is Chris Paul's gonna bury it but he didn't and Chris Paul ended up with what like seven points six points something like that and if he's not able to hit that mid-range jumper when he needs to at that consistency that we've been used to with him I think that's that's I mean obviously it's not going to bode well for the Suns but when you have such a small roster that you're playing you need all of your big guys to be performing like that heat team you're talking about Chris Bosh Dwayne Wade LeBron James these guys were all 26 27 you know 25 like guys that are going to keep going not we're not talking 35 36 37 however old these guys are right now but then at the same time I think back in like Eric Gordon started off and he had like 11 points in the first two seconds of the game like he was on fire but at the end at that same point when Chris Paul was missing those jumpers Eric Gordon just botched a couple wide open three-point attempts at the end there that I think could have sent it clearly for the Clippers to win so I I guess that's my way of saying that this feels pretty even to me right now and I need one more game to see what's real yeah the Clippers did win just don't forget that (laughs) Yes, the Clippers did yes, win. You said, but you said if, if Gordon hit some threes, the Clippers could have won. <laughs> they could have. I mean, they yes. did, but they also could have. Been. Yes. Um, okay. We've, we've, we've stalled long enough. We have to talk about what may have been the best opening playoff game of all time. The Kings and Warriors. I... I think I had a spiritual experience in this game. I could not believe, like, the game started, and then two hours later it was over, and I was like, what just happened? I had no sort of conscious embodiment. I was I was taken to another plane of existence watching this game, and just to think that there's going to be, like, three or four more games. Cody, how can, how can game two or game three, how can another game in this series repeat the intensity of this game and... Is that a possible theme moving forward? If like, are, is it possible the Kings have played the entire year to be in better shape than their opponents for the playoffs? Like, what's what is going to happen in the next game? Will anyone be able to walk by game three? I I mean, if that's the case, then I'm really listen, listen. I wasn't on the pod before the playoffs. I tried to tweet it before the series so it could be out there. I picked the Kings to win this, and, and you know, I'm not some kind of hero. I'm not a martyr. The Kings are the the, the three. I don't I don't care. About you six, are. The you high. are. You went. You went all the way. You went all the way. Cody is Cody is making an allusion to the fact that despite my fence sitting, I ended up leaning Golden State. And if we're talking about what we learned, I actually felt good about leaning Golden State at the end of the day. And I thought the Warriors looked great. And yet they also lost. And it wasn't some like, yeah, you you know, Fox's jumper was on, but it wasn't a loss that felt like shooting luck. Let's put it that way. So it was a close game. 
close games can go either way. There's a lot of factors in close games. One or two calls can can flip a close game and stuff like that. It came down to the final shot. But what I mean by it wasn't about luck to me is the Kings had their shot quality throughout the game. The Kings ran their offense throughout the game, which is one of the many themes of the video we did on the game that's out on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. And they seem to get stronger with those principles throughout the game. Like in the halftime adjustment, I think might have been the greatest halftime adjustment in the history of the NBA. Mike Brown said, run. That was the <laughs> halftime adjustment. I just envisioned him like Gandalf up there with a staff, you know, when they're down Fly, in the mines of Moria. Yes. And that was his halftime speech. Run, you fools. I've been on the I've been in the other locker room. They will not run as much as us. And the thing about the Kings pace is it's not a gimmick. They're so well coached and they're they're so comfortable running their offense. There's a play in the video that really jumps out to me where they try to play two man. Um, there's the typical screen away, read, split, cut, flow into the two man that the Kings have all this movement and continuity, but they also have Sabonis and the, the dribble handoff stuff. It's taken away. Everything's taken away wonderfully by the Warriors, who I thought Andrew Wiggins looked amazing. Draymond Green played well. Is they just they just look great. The Warriors look great. Fox tries to get downhill, wheels by Sabonis. Sabonis gives him the ball. Draymond makes his incredible recovery to help. They're shut off. There's six seconds left on the shot clock. And what does Kevin Herter do? He goes, I'm gonna sprint to the top for a ghost screen. Because that's what we do. That's what the Kings do. We don't devolve into isolation. We don't stand around and point at each other. I'm going to go up and move and screen. And that's how we're going to play the entire 24-second shot clock. And Cody, I think that possession was with like two or three minutes left in the game. Um, It's in the video. So, I mean, this is something you can easily reference. But most teams just fall back on isolation there. And that was the play. Actually, it might have been in the final minute. That was the play where Herter brought Curry up and Curry got the key foul that put Fox on the line. That doesn't happen if you stand around. So I just thought the Kings offense was relentless. I thought they got stronger throughout the game. I thought their shot quality was great. And yeah, the Warriors look great and Sacramento still won. So I I mean, can game two be half as good as game one? Here's my question to you, because one of my one of my premises for why I wasn't a hundred percent on board with the Warriors, where I feel a little bit more confident with the Kings, is that yes, I understand that Draymond Green is a genius level defender. He's not, I don't think, to the level that he was last year, but he's still, I don't know, top whatever defenders in the league right now. But with the style that the the Kings play defense, especially when Sabonis and the main lineups that the Warriors play, Draymond Green's probably gonna be on Sabonis. I was thinking how much of an impact can one person like Draymond Green actually have on the entire offensive lineup that the Kings have? What can this one player do to have that much of an impact? And I guess that's my question to you. What did you feel about Draymond Green's individual impact? Is he? Do you think this is going to be a series where his, his genius is actually mitigated a little bit by the style of offense that the Kings play? Yeah, yeah, to some degree, sure. But I also think, you know, and I'm wondering if you have changed your mind a little on this. Kavon Looney did a great job on Sabonis. Mm. Um, That was Mm -hmm. probably Sabonis' worst game of the season. And it'll be interesting to see how much Looney plays. I think he got over 30 minutes because there were plays where the pace exposed Looney because he just can't sprint down the court with the rest of these guys. And as the game wore on, the Kings are just grabbing and taking off. And, uh, you know, it's like they're shot out of a cannon. But... 
on the flip side, he did a wonderful job with Sabonis. Now, whether that can hold up, whether Sabonis can make an adjustment, whether he can go four for seven around the basket instead of one for seven or whatever it ended up being, you know, there were some close misses. You mentioned Evan Mobley in the Cavs game, those kinds of shots, like pretty good shots that in this game you miss three or four, maybe the next game you make three or four. Um, We will see. But between Draymond and Looney and then Andrew Wiggins, who just, I mean, that guy could roll out of bed I think, and and play basketball after an unlimited time. He looked fantastic, and his length changes everything because they're so small. So when they get Wiggins back, they're, they, they have a little bit more size. They have a little bit more versatility. They have a little bit more bingo time, Cody, of your favorite thing, rim protection, mm-hmm. with Andrew Wiggins out there. So I think the answer to your question is yes, because the Sacramento offense is so good and so well-distributed, with shooters and and cutters and playmakers, um, I think it's hard for Draymond individually to have an incredible impact. So it mitigates that a little bit. But I also thought I thought Golden State did a pretty good job defensively, and it like still doesn't matter. I thought the Kings played a good defensive game. You know, they they didn't have a ton of like gaping issues. The Warriors' shot making down the stretch was like from a video game. Steph Curry's making threes, falling out of bounds. Klay Thompson, all of a sudden, Klay Thompson's like, hey, do you guys mind if I take some pick and roll, dribble, pull up 30 footers? Is that something that you'd be interested in? Uh, Help me out. This series is amazing. So on the Sabonis point, like you said about Kevon Looney, what's interesting about the way that he defends him, the fact that Kevon Looney like isn't very fast and can't really seem to jump very high right now is actually helpful against Sabonis because Sabonis just wants to like bang down low and just kind of like keep spinning around and up faking you. And Luna's like, this is all I got, man. <laughs> this is it. You're going to have to make I'm the first I'm not coming move. out there. You're going to yeah. have to come to me. Yeah. And there was one play where Sabonis, I think he maybe caught it at the, at the top of the key. And he's like, well, I have it here. I'm like 18 feet away. Looney's not going to guard me. I guess I should probably shoot it. And he missed it, right? And I think this is the difference between what we saw between like uh, Bam Adebayo and how he was able to attack Brooke Lopez and DeAndre Ayton and how he was able to attack Zubats. When you're one of these kinds of guys, you have to have like a 15 to 18 foot jump shot. And when you're able to consistently make that shot, not that you want to have like a steady diet of it, but when it comes down to it, you need to be able to fall back on that. And that seems to be another step where Sabonis needs to develop is just a little bit of a more consistent mid-range jump shot. So somebody like Kevon Looney can't come in and and scheme you out of it. Ben, can I can I ask you <laughs> Do you know which player Ben for the Kings played 12 13 minutes and was plus 10 after playing 162 minutes during the regular season? I know this by process of elimination cuz there aren't that many players on the Kings that played 13 minutes. You didn't need to give me the second clue. He played a great game. It is the one and only Alex Len. They needed a big body. He rebounded. He finished at the rim. Those were some those maybe were the best 13 minutes in NBA playoff history. He absolutely spiked Draymond Green's shot. Like he was like, I see your defensive player of the year, and I raise you me. Hwa! And just throws it out. Like that was that was inspired basketball from a guy. And you know, I know, I know. I was looking back. Alex Len got a little bit more run in the last few games, but it's also not like we were expecting him to have a huge impact against the Warriors in this game. So I'm excited to see more of that. Obviously, I don't want it to sit on Len because, you know, De'Aaron Fox had a tremendous game. Malik Monk, Ben. 
what are we going to do about Malik Monk? Like, what are we going to do about him? You mean you mean potentially the best reserve in the league? I mean, if you haven't heard that, if you haven't heard that episode, we did a whole thing on the best bench players, and uh, I felt like I was I felt like I was on Monk Island, population Uno, and now I think more people, more I'm noticing more spots settling. I'm noticing some uh, some signs for people who are building new homes on Monk Island. He had 32 points off the bench. Uh, he and Fox combined for 70 points in this game. But but we talked about it a ton. I wasn't worried about Monk. He might have some games where he has eight points or 12 points, but he, he's a guy who has, to me, shown an ability in his game and his sort of mental approach to step up in the biggest of moments under the highest pressure cooker. The thing I still have a question about is Keegan Murray um, ended up playing 16 minutes, missed all three of his threes, didn't look entirely comfortable out there. To a degree, he was a weak link. Kevin Herter played pretty well, but but he didn't get the flow. He missed all five of his threes. Was he nervous? One of those guys, I think, has to pop for Sacramento because Trey Lyles is not going to make four threes frequently Trey Lyles has played well off the bench this year and he gives them another shooter and a stretch option but I think they need one of those other starters Cody whether it's Herter or Murray and probably especially Herter to have a couple big games to get a little comfortable to not kind of be drowned out because I I mean we I don't know if we've said this explicitly we talked about the intensity but the quality of that game that was like an NBA finals quality game the skill making and the, the the shot making and everything as skill making I just made up a term but I you know I'm <laughs> losing my mind here um, that was insane and you had Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green and Andrew Wiggins and and De'Aaron Fox and Monk in this heavyweight battle I think going forward it'll be interesting to see if Sabonis can turn the tide not just for a single game with his shot or something, but really find a way to have offensive success in the series. And I think Herter, more so than Murray, they need one of those guys. Because um, if if not, I don't know. It'll be it'll be interesting to see because I, I think they really need that. Couple couple of points here. Couple of points here. on the on the skill making point here on, on the level yeah. on the on the level of skill making they had. I, I haven't seen anyone else bring this up. Right. I almost feel like I dreamed it, Ben. Like during the game, I may have passed out and just like dreamed of this basketball game. I'm still not sure if it was real. There's like three minutes left in the first quarter. Davion Mitchell's bringing the ball up. He's like on the right side. He's like 70 feet from the basket. One handed skip pass to the corner. I don't even remember who was in the corner. I don't know if they shot. I don't know if they made it. But I just like, I died for a second. Because I'm like, Davion Mitchell is just out here throwing 70-foot skip passes. And this is just where we are with the NBA. Like, I like no no offense to Davion Mitchell, but this is not the kind of the, the player in this kind of role that would be making passes like that in a playoff game. It just blew my mind. And then going back to Malik Monk, something that stood out to me. I'm not usually one that watches post-game pressers. I got nothing against them. I just don't. But this is one where I just like, I had to turn it on because I couldn't get enough of the game. I just need to keep soaking in it. And something that stood out to me was Mike Brown was talking about Malik Monk. And he had this comment. He was like, you know, I took, I took Malik onto the side and I was like, hey, when you're coming off the pick and roll, if you look, you're going to see some of these guys that are open and we want you to make that pass. But also, 
I got to trust you and whatever you're going to do. I got to trust your instinct out there. And he's like, I think that's the kind of thing Monk needed to hear. And I think that's the kind of guy you have with Malik Monk. It's like the Manu Ginobili type with Popovich, where Popovich has such a strict way that he wants him to play. But when you have a guy whose instincts are just like, you got to ride or die with it, you got to ride, you you just got to go with it. And I really respect Mike Brown for empowering his guy like that. I apologize to the hardcores for waiting till the end of the episode to get into this. Although maybe on the flip side, you know, that'll that'll uh, incentivize the, the people to listen <laughs> all the way through. <laughs> the adjustments going forward are mm-hmm. going to be fascinating, Cody, because on one hand, I don't know if there's a tactical adjustment for the King's speed other than just really stop crashing the glass. Like when the shot goes up, you just everyone run back desperately because the King's speed is like a physical attribute that cannot be overcome. It is a lifestyle. It is a mentality. It is, it is, I don't know. There's no tactical adjustment for it other than your rebounding and things like that. The other part is in the half court, the speed they have in the half court, because De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk, um, no one can stay in front of them. And you're going to need to make a lot of adjustments if you don't have a way to stay in front of those two guys when they have the ball. So that's one side for Golden State. I think they can they can make some tweaks to the offense. Like I said, they were guarded really well, but maybe they can make some tweaks to the offense. I thought they had a couple slips or backdoors that were available that they didn't hit. The other thing about the intensity in this game is sometimes when you get a game that's that intense that the players aren't used to, they miss passes because everything is happening so fast and so furiously. And that means defensively, you can get away with a little more chaos. Um, I don't know if that's going to hold for the rest of the series, but I do think the biggest adjustment to think about for Golden State will be the lineups. Who guards who? Who plays more? Do they go more small ball? Are you leaning into Looney? Are you leaning leaning away from Looney since he's really their only true big in the equation? He's the guy you have to think about. The, the Warriors for years have demonstrated an ability to be as flexible as any other team and to sometimes think outside the box. So, you know, maybe I'm wrong when I say there's no tactical adjustment to the to the speed and the fast break other than just traditional rebounding stuff because... Um, yeah, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to see what happens, let's put it this way, because I think history shows us they will try something different. Is this, is this safe to say that this is the, the first round series you're most excited about? Is it not coming through clearly as we, yeah. as we record? <laughs> I, I, want, I want to hear you say it. Oh, I said it. I said it, um, I said it on the preview show with Dave. I mean, I just, I just it's an incredible first round matchup. And it, you said, like, you weren't sure if you dreamed the game. That's how it feels to me just in terms of the philosophy of basketball, in terms of the direction of basketball, the future of basketball. You have these teams, and I have it in the video on game one, where sometimes it looks like they're mirroring each other. You know, it's like the same play on one end as the other end. And, of course, literalists get very mad at me when I say that. They they get on the YouTube and they're like, there's no Kevin Herter's not Clay Thompson. It's like... I. I know that. I know Kevin Herter's not Clay Thompson, but you have to understand the styles and the sort of facsimiles that are taking place out there. And these teams play very fast. 
They play with a lot of movement. They play with a lot of shooters. The Kings also have a, a this dribble handoff, you know, use the big kind of, kind of um, Nikola Jokic thing going on. To have these two forces collide really does have a little bit of a, uh, what's it called? An immovable force meets, uh, what's that called? An immovable object meets an unstoppable force. Did I there get that are. right? Yeah, that sounds yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Now, th- now, of course, the King's defense isn't up to par, so it doesn't feel like that titanic heavyweight battle in terms of the overall quality of the teams, but in terms of the offense and sort of the, the offensive tactics and execution, um, yeah, this is, this is the bee's knees to me. <laughs> I, I just don't know. I, I just don't know how the Warriors' offense can keep up with the constant Kings. So it feels like the Kings have more high-level offensive players they can keep rotating out if if, if Steph Curry is not there. Because Ben, like Steph Curry in that fourth quarter, made a couple like that corner three he made impossible. It, it was impossible. Like that happened. Clay Thompson had one of his classic clay shots. Underrated. Steph Curry had like a split the D drive in, throws by into someone, kind of windmill up a layup. Impossible shots. He scored 13 points in the fourth quarter. De'Aaron Fox scored 15 points in the fourth quarter. Malik Monk scored 13 points in the fourth quarter. So like Steph Curry's shot making is being matched shot for shot from Fox and Monk. And like I thought Curry was giving them all they got. Like I, I was genuinely surprised when his little floater at the end didn't go in. Um, I, I don't know. I feel, I feel more confident in my Kings pick after that first game. Oh wow, interesting. Yeah, I do. Very, very interesting. Yeah, I thought, I thought Golden State looked really good. This is, oh boy, we got, we got to get out of here, Cody. There's a couple other series that we haven't discussed. Do you have? Is there another series where you changed your mind a little bit that you want to mention before we before we talk next time? I need to I need to shake my fists at the basketball gods, Ben. I need to I don't want to be blasphemous here, Ben, but I'm hurt. I'm hurt cuz pro- a couple weeks ago, maybe like a month ago at this point, I said on this little podcast, you and I were talking, and I was like, "Ben, the Miami Heat are interesting. They're coming at you. I've seen them play, and you're like, Cody, they suck. And I'm like, I know. I would but never use such language. I'm like, they're coming at you. And the basketball gods thank me by matching the Heat up with my Milwaukee Bucks in a game when Giannis goes down with an injury. Ben, it's not fair. I paid my tribute. They, this should have been the Hawks and Bucks playing in this round. The Heat should be giving the Celtics another seven-game series. But no, this is where we are right now, and I'm genuinely hurt. I, I want to respond to what you just said, but I just realized we forgot to talk about the Nets and the 76ers, which I, I spent all of Saturday morning chronicling this entire video about the incredible double teams that the Nets were running because they're running the exact same peel shifting principles that we talked about in a video a couple months ago and they did it the whole game and it was fascinating and I'm fascinated to see what happens in game two or game three if there's any adjustments and it's like oh no guys that happened Saturday morning so that was like four years ago so you actually forgot about the existence of those teams um I I I did not watch the Miami Milwaukee game because uh, I think Milwaukee is going to win that series. But with Miami being up one nothing, I mean, when Giannis was on the court, he only played eleven minutes, but they were minus nine. 
So, you know, to your point about being a heat truther here, we all know the matchup that took place in the bubble. Now, mm-hmm. if I could go back in time and live podcast and recreate me watching the Bucks heat in the bubble, game one, I missed most of the game live. I don't remember how much I was able to watch some of game one, but it was the same thing, right? Didn't, didn't the heat kind of stun them in game one in the bubble? And my thought was like, yeah, but the Bucks are better. And then I was watching game two, and about second quarter of game two, I started texting people, Milwaukee, we have a problem. Um, so I will be watching game two, and Cody, you do not want to receive that text from me at, at halftime of game two. But I, I, still don't think, I still don't think it's coming. I'm still, still feeling pretty good about the Bucks. You know, I gave up all hope when they were down against the Nets a couple of years ago. I gave up all hope when they were down 0-2 against the Suns in the final. So we've we've been in tougher positions. I can whip out the LeBron and being like, I've been in tough positions. This isn't one of them. But there were, I, I don't know. I was just really impressed with Miami. Like Chris Middleton at times really went into his bag. He was going back to his old Chris Middleton tricks, backing guys down, hitting tough mid-range jumpers. And I thought their shot making was good. Like it seemed like they were mounting a comeback a couple times in the fourth. And he just responded, man. Like there was a no time the Bucks could really get it in with like eight points because Butler would come back and make some kind of play. Or I think Caleb Martin hit like uh, a couple of and one driving layups and everyone just kind of pitched in was doing stuff. Bam. I was impressed with his no hesitation mid-range jumpers, which I think is the only way to really counter Brooke Lopez. Uh, Brooke Lopez is, should probably be posted up more. Like I think if Giannis isn't in there, the, the Bucks need to lean on Brook being a little on, bit bigger offense, in the paint. He should, he should be yeah. posted up on offense. Absolutely. Yeah. He needs to be doing that more. So I, I think there's a lot of things that can be different. And obviously the Giannis variable is uh, we got to see what's happening there. Yeah. Who knows if he'll if he'll play in the next game or miss a game. Um, you know, contusion, fancy word for, for bruise. So hopefully that's nothing nagging, chronic or long term. But just looking at the box score, just to kind of center myself, um, I think if Jimmy Butler has an efficient 35-point, 11-assist game going forward in the series, that might be a concerning situation for Milwaukee. I think if the Heat post a 126 offensive rating, and, well, they did go 15 of 25 from downtown, so that's probably not going to happen. I did not even realize that. 15 of 25 from downtown, that is Look at what the Bucks shot. Look at what the Bucks shot from downtown. Uh, the Bucks, that's uh, a classic game one Bucks, <laughs> 11 of 45 from downtown. <laughs> See, I'm even less worried now okay. that I've seen these numbers. Of course, unfortunately, Tyler Hero, who, mm-hmm. you know, he 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 was putting up numbers. He will be out for the series. So that's a that's a pretty big blow to Miami, even with Butler and Bam playing like that. So are you saying for the record, officially, that you are concerned about your Milwaukee Bucks? I mean, of course. I mean, if you're a fan, you're always concerned. Like being a fan is just being in a state of being scared all the time. Like you're never satisfied until it's it's over and you're holding the trophy. So, am I more concerned than I was two days ago? Absolutely. But like, I don't. I can't. You can't ask me to do this in like a in like a thoughtful way right now. If you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That's where you can find those predictions that I mentioned. We also have our live monthly Q&A coming up at the end of the month 
where that's a lot of fun, where uh, uh, our Discord community gets together and asks me a bunch of questions. I, I was going to say about the playoffs, but usually during the playoffs, they like to ask me questions about the 1976 Boston Celtics. Um, I actually, I texted Cody after the game. I was like, I can't believe how good that Kings Warriors game has been. The whole the whole weekend was incredible. I said, when do you think the last time there was a game that was that good in the NBA playoffs, and he said the year was 1976. So just warming up for the for the Q and A. Patreon.com slash Thinking Basketball. Thanks as always for listening all the way through on this one. And of course, now with the playoffs going, I hope you are having an extra special great day. 